in today's passage, we're going to see Jesus make costly demands of people who want to follow him. We're going to meet a Jesus who caused huge financial loss for some pig farmers. But nestled right in the middle of that passage, we're going to meet a Jesus who is far more wonderful than his followers suspect, a Jesus worth following. We're not unfamiliar with this idea, are we? Giving birth to a baby is personally and financial costly, but people do it every day because it is far more wonderful than they suspect. Driving 5,000 kilometres from Sydney to, to be at Exmouth to experience the total eclipse of the sun last week, last Thursday, would be per- personally and financially costly, but people did it because we're told it was far more wonderful than they could have imagined. Waiting for hours in the lineup, uh, even days to visit Queen Elizabeth's coffin last year would have been personally and financially costly, but for some, it was far more important than they would suspect. Everything we do has a cost attached, either hobbies or relationships. And following Jesus is costly. From the actor in Hollywood who doesn't land leading roles because he, he won't do the required sex scenes because he wants to honour his God and his wife, to the chairman of an AFL, uh, an, an AFL team being sacked due to his Christian convictions, or the uni student as he or she goes to the Christian group knowing that he'll be mocked, they'll be mocked behind their back. Following the Lord Jesus is costly. The question is, is it worth it? Is Jesus worth it? Is Jesus as wonderful as he promised? My prayer is that we'll come away from this passage in Matthew this morning convinced that Jesus is totally worth it, not only because of what he does, but because of who he is. Do you want to pray with me? Great God, we thank you so much that we can gather together under your word Holy Spirit, help us to see Jesus clearly and to see what the cost is in following him, but that it would be totally worth it because he's our friend, our redeemer and our king. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's look at the first section, verses 18 to 22. I think we have this bad habit sometimes of putting Jesus in a box. We think we've understood him, but then we think we can predict how he works But then he surprises us, doesn't he? That's going to happen quite a few times in this passage. Keep an eye out for it. Jesus has just come from healing the bloke with leprosy. And he's healed the centurion's servant. And he's healed Peter's mother-in-law. And he's healed a stack of folks and released them from demon oppression. That's what we looked at last week. And in verse 18, he decides to cross to the other side of the lake. But before he does, two men come to him in verse 19, a teacher of the law and an unnamed disciple, both keen and willing to follow Jesus. What would you say to someone who was keen to follow Jesus? I know what I'd do. I'd say, yes, can I have a coffee with you? Can I open up the Bible? Can I read? Can I pray with you? I'd even open up to Acts 16 verse 31 maybe and and say, This is what it means to follow Jesus. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. 
Or I might take him to Matthew 11 and say, come to Jesus, all who are weary and burdened, and he will give you rest for your souls. Or I'd go to 10, Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. That's not what Jesus does here. Here in verses 20 and 22, he seems to do the opposite. Two men are showing a desire to follow him, but both times he rebuffs them. It's costly, he says. The first man has had offered to follow Jesus wherever he'll go. And Jesus answers in verse 20 by saying that animals and birds have nests and, and dens, but following Jesus will be hard because he has no place to lay his head. Then the second man, a disciple of Jesus already, it seems, says, I'll follow you, just let me go bury my dad. That's a fairly reasonable request, I'm guessing, isn't it? But Jesus says, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Jesus obviously knows their hearts in a way that we don't. He can see more than we can. The first man must have needed a caution. Maybe he was making the decision to follow Jesus too quickly. Jesus wanted him to weigh up the cost and to make an informed decision. Maybe the man had assumed that being connected to the Messiah would give him prestige and privilege in the, in the Jewish world. But Jesus isn't interested in only having fans. He's interested in having faithful, genuine followers. And loyalty to Jesus doesn't come quickly and easily. It can be costly now or later. So Jesus wants to make sure the man's prepared And what about that second fella? What does Jesus see he needs? On the surface, this man's request to bury his father, it appears really reasonable, doesn't it? Sons are expected to look after their parents, aren't they? But Jesus says, follow me and let the dead bury their own. From other passages in the Bible, we know that Jesus isn't encouraging the man to be disrespectful of his father. Maybe Jesus could see in this man's heart that burying his father was an excuse or a delay in following him. People probably do it today, I guess. Lord, let me pay off my mortgage first, then I'll follow you. Lord, let me first experience a bit of life, then I'll follow you. Lord, let me get my health back on track first, and then I'll follow you. Whatever is delaying us from following Jesus is getting in the way. Anything that prevents us from following Jesus today is something that we are valuing way too highly. For this man, it was the thought of having to bury his father. Later in Matthew 10, Jesus says, Anyone who loves his father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Yes, providing for the burials of his father is a good thing. But if that's the thing, preventing him from following Jesus, which is the most important thing, well, that's a dangerous distraction. For both these men, Jesus makes demands that are personal and costly because he wants 
genuine, authentic, all-in followers. Yes, salvation by grace through faith alone, in Christ alone, in that way it is free and costs nothing. But receiving grace means that we've repented, that we've personally died to ourselves and have turned to serve Jesus as Lord of our life. And that's costly. Have you ever heard the poem by William Rees? Here it is. I'd like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of God to make me love an unlovely man or pick beets with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a bit of of the eternal in a paper bag. I'd like $3 worth of God, please. At least Wilbur was honest enough to verbalise it, eh? Let's not buy into cheap grace. Jesus makes demands that are personal and are costly. The call to follow Jesus is not simply an invitation to pray a prayer. It's a summons to lose our lives. Jesus isn't going to sugarcoat it, and perhaps we shouldn't either. Now come with me to verses 23 to 27. What picture do we get here of Jesus? Jesus is on the boat. He's heading to the other side of the sea and his disciples, with his disciples, and a furious storm starts. Done a bit of reading this week. I've not been over that part of the world, but I found out that this was a common event in the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is 207 metres below sea level. So it's, it's surrounded by hills that are 610 metres high. And the hills are a source of cool, cool, dry air. But the sea is semi-tropical with warm, moist air. And so when the wind drops over those hills there comes violent results. The contrasting air meets and a storm can occur quickly and without warning. Small boats were always in the firing line. So here's Jesus and his disciples stuck in one of these violent storms. Jesus is sleeping. He's obviously physically tired. But the disciples, what are they? They're they're awake. They're, They're witnessing the storm and they're terrified. And what's their response? Look at verse 25. Lord, save us. We're going to drown. In their minds, this is a life or death situation. Now, if they were on on the boat alone, it would be, wouldn't it? They'd have every, every reason to say, this is it, boys, we're going to drown. Thanks for knowing me. It's been good. But they're not alone, are they? They have the man who teaches God's truth with authority. A man who heals diseases and and heals people without even having to touch them or be in the same town as them. A man who heals all sorts of sicknesses and demon possession. And they think they're going to drown with Jesus on the board. When Jesus corrects them in verse 26, what do you think he's correcting them for? Is it because they woke him up? Well, maybe not even though he might have been a bit tired? Is it because they're asking him for help? I don't think that's the reason either. 
I think it's because they're asking in, in fear while the Son of God is sitting right there with them in their presence. You of little faith, Jesus says to them, why are you so afraid? Yes, wake me up. Yes, ask for my help. But don't be afraid when I'm right here with you. Don't you know who I am yet? They don't quite get it yet, do they? Then he talks to the wind and the waves and it goes completely calm. Literally, there was a great calm. The storm, the great storm became a great calm because of Jesus. Even despite their lack of faith, Jesus calmed the storm with mere words. And the disciples don't understand, although they must be getting closer because they say, what, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. You see, Jesus is more wonderful than they suspect. Let's look at the third section, verses 28 to 34. It's a passage where Jesus is going to, to, he's going to surprise us and, and even disappoint us, I reckon, because he puts eternal realities before anything else. We might be familiar with this event. As soon as Jesus arrives on the other side of the lake, two demon-possessed men come to him and question him. Verse 29, what do you want with us, son of God? Notice they recognise who he is. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? They know it's coming. The, the demons fear what Jesus might do to them so, and so beg him to put, the, put them into the pigs. So what's he do? He casts them out of them, out of the men and into the pigs. Then the pigs rush off the hill and over the cliff and into the lake and far away. The pig farmers experienced huge losses that day, didn't they? And the whole town pleads with Jesus to get out of the region. You see, Jesus has sovereign power over demons. The eternal reality is in this story is that two men have been restored from demon possession. I'd like to think that if I was there that day, I'd have been amazed at that. Maybe there are other demon-possessed people in the region and I would have gone to get them and brought them to Jesus and to liberate, help, them, help Jesus liberate them. But no, what do the people of the town see? They see their livelihoods destroyed. They see all their bacon gone. And they ask the Son of God to, to leave. We're not sure why Jesus granted the demon's request to send them into the pigs. We're not sure why Jesus didn't stop the injustices the Jews were experiencing under the Romans. We're not sure why Jesus only healed some sick people and not all the sick people that he came across when he was on earth. We're not sure why he didn't raise more people from the dead because he had the power to do it. But what we do know is this that Jesus puts eternal realities before anything else. The setting free of these two men from demons that were inside of them is much more important than a couple of thousand pigs. And limiting the power of Satan is much more important than the financial situation of a few pig farmers. You see, 
Jesus is much more concerned with a person's spiritual well-being than their hip pocket, which is here today and gone tomorrow. You see, Jesus is much more concerned with his glory and the stamping out of Satan than the life of animals. Hard truths, but it makes sense. As my father was lying on his deathbed at the age of 47, that's my age today, after a battle with cancer, he said to one of his mates, Alec, from church, that he'd messed up his life. He'd put way more importance on building his farm business and his tractors and his sheep. He loved his sheep. And he loved buying more farmland. Put all of his energy in that. And he was realising that he hadn't been putting things on what was more eternal. He realised way too late that he should have been investing more in his relationship with God through Jesus and the people that God had placed in his life. Because relationships are the things that last. So standing back from today's chapter, we have two challenging passages at the beginning and the end with a beautiful jewel in the middle. We can't box Jesus in and we can't fashion him into our own liking. He makes demands of his followers that are personal and costly He puts eternal realities before anything else, much to the pig farmer's disappointment. But thank God that Jesus is always far more wonderful than even the most committed followers can suspect. Who is this man? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Have you come to see that Jesus is more wonderful than you can understand? Has your life been radically changed because of who Jesus is? Do you stand back still and say, what kind of man is this, that even the wind and the waves obey him? What a tragedy it would be if we settle on only about $3 worth of Jesus. By the way, what's the answer to the question, who is this man? I think it's this. He's not a mere man. He's been sent from God. He's the second person of the Trinity. He's God in the flesh. What kind of man is this? Well, he's not like us. His words cause nature to to listen and demons to follow him. He can command obedience from the most boisterous elements in nature. He must be the glorious king of the universe. In 1880, when Abraham Kuyper founded the Free University in Amsterdam, he was also the professor of theology there. This is what he says in his inaugural speech. There is not a square inch in the whole dominion of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. There's no War, no famine, no storm, no tumour, no personal conflict, no illness that Christ Jesus does not have complete control over. You see, Jesus is far more wonderful than we can ever suspect. And he invites us to follow him, to follow him wholeheartedly, to follow him first, to follow him even when it's costly.
And those demands make sense because he is so wonderful. And people in this passage aren't even aware of exactly how wonderful and how marvellous Jesus is, are they? We live on this side of the cross. We can see Jesus in all his glory and splendour, can't we? I'm going to read the words from Charles Gabriel's song that we sing occasionally here, I Stand Amazed. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. He took my sins and my sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary. He suffered and died alone. Oh, how marvellous, how wonderful. And my song shall ever be, how marvellous, how wonderful is my Saviour's love for me. Amen.